Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Welcome to another episode of the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast with me, Mike Sassy. Sam Thorne is director of the critically acclaimed Nottingham Contemporary Gallery, the gallery that has secured Nottingham's place on Britain's cultural map. By trade, he is a writer, curator, magazine editor and art critic. But his stewardship of first, the Taint St Ives Gallery, where he was previously artistic director, and for the last five years of the Nottingham Contemporary, have made him a prominent leader in the arts world. Sam Thorne, welcome to the Business Leaders Podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. Good to be here. Right. So, like all galleries and museums, the, the Contemporary has been closed for months during lockdown. How big a test of your leadership has that been? It's been tremendously challenging for all of us. You know, when I when I look back to, what, 13 months ago, I remember having a board meeting on something like March the 5th. And yes, there was an item on COVID. And yes, we were feeling quite confident about it, but it still felt like something that was months away rather than days away. And then on the Monday evening, the Prime Minister's announcement meant that we had to close immediately. And... You know, as in any industry, there's no playbook for this, right? We have a team of about 75 people. Might surprise people to know just how many we are because our organization encompasses education. It it encompasses research, a cafe, a shop, so many different things that are happening below the surface and around the city. And suddenly overnight, working out how we work from home, how we continue these things online or remotely was really tough. Um, But, you know, I think at this point now, speaking to you, Mike, a year later and at a point where we were able to open for three months, we're very we're very proud we could do that. And we are just on the cusp of reopening for what we hope will be the last time. Um, It's been um, it's been a year of plenty of lessons that I think will really reshape what we're going to be doing in the next 10 years. But I would say more than that, I really do think it's going to reshape what museums are doing in the future. I think this is really a a turning point for museums at which we're kind of moving away from that 20th century model and we're moving into something entirely different. And I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm excited about it. Does that mean more online? I think online is an important aspect of this. Uh, You know, we'd always thought of ourselves as primarily a place for in-person encounters. So I'll give you an example. We have for many years through a partnership with Nottingham Trent and with the University of Nottingham been presenting a program of 100 live events every year, all for free. One of those things includes fortnightly study sessions where 20 people get around a table in our meeting room and work their way through a book or a body of work or whatever. That had always been for small groups because that's the size of the room. But as soon as we started to put that on Zoom, we had three, four, 500 people from around the world joining these conversations. And so I think there are some things that do need to be intimate and in person and in depth. And there are other things that 
we're going to be thinking about ourselves as broadcasting, you know, as much as bringing people uh, to to ourselves as a center. So that old idea of a contemporary arts center, I think, is really changing. We're starting to think about ourselves as much more networked. But so much of what you do is embedded within the community in Nottingham. I know that you've talked about the um, importance of the education and the free learning and, and, and yourselves as, as, as something, as an institution which is transformational for the city. Isn't that more difficult online? It, it cuts both ways, I think. There are things that we do online that can reach an international audience. So, for example, two years ago now, we started to make VR versions of all of our exhibitions, make 3D scans of them. And our first instinct was, this is a fantastic way for people around the world who are never going to be able to make it to Nottingham to experience our exhibitions. What we found though, was that that's also an incredible resource for school children in the city, for care homes, people who can't or aren't able to make it to the building. So there are some ways in which these technologies are not only about um, a binary between local and international. I think it's more interesting if the two are informing one another. But but yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, I think back to one of our founding statements and it was to be an international centre of contemporary art with a strong sense of local purpose. And at this point, if you ask me what the short or medium term holds, it's really about embedding ourselves further in the city by strengthening, deepening those kinds of ties and collaborations with, with local people and, and organisations, while also extending those collaborations around the world too. So it's doing more of both. <laughs> okay. Um, but as you say, you're having to change, you're having to move quite quickly. Mm. As a leader, how difficult has that been to take your institution with you to take, you say you've got 75 staff to take mm. the staff. Um, is, that a, is that a big challenge? I think there's a real hunger for change. You know, we have a we have a Is that internally young, and externally? I think so. I think so. You know, as you know, Nottingham's a pretty young city. We have a very young audience so far as museums and galleries go. More than half of the people who come through our doors are under the age of 35. So, you know, these are not people who are particularly bothered about the older ways of that museums might have worked, right? They're not particularly bothered about the older distinctions between art and design and music and gaming or, or whatever else. And that's reflected in our team. So I think what we're interested in is thinking about how a contemporary art centre can be a place of the future, for the future, for anticipating the future. So I don't think bringing people along has, has been a challenge. The challenge in the last year has been how do you continue a conversation among team when the majority of them are on furlough? This is something that, of course, we never had any experience of. And there were long portions of last year when it was me, a senior management team, some support staff working on the building, working on accounts and so on, having very intense, fast moving conversations that were often changing weekly, even daily, as new advice, conflicting advice from government came out. And how could you bring people along, include them in those conversations when they were not when they were not working? That was really tough. In terms of your leadership, what prepared you for that? I'm not sure if anything can prepare you quite for a pandemic, right? But <laughs> if I if I look back, yes, yes. a couple of things that I mean I found myself drawing on. As you mentioned before, I moved to Nottingham five years ago. I was artistic director at Tates and Tides. And 
Tate St Ives is one of the four branches of the Tate Museum, opened in the early 90s, uh, has the, uh, and still has the, uh, the remit of celebrating the, uh, the legacy of, of the artists who moved there during the Second World War, but who've been living there since mid-19th century. It's an incredible museum, just perched on the edge of the Atlantic. And when I started, it was in the midst of a major capital project, a 25 million pound project that was doubling the size of this museum. And it was a point at which to continue to generate income, we had to stay open, even though we were building a new wing directly next door to the museum, directly next door to social housing, over a gas line, next to a cemetery, and on the edge of the ocean, right? Uh, and so day in and day out, new challenges would arise. I'll give an example. Vibrations from the drilling into this tremendously hard kind of granite, causing sculptures to jiggle around on the plinths. Mike, we had to consult with seismologists and mining experts to tell us how to run the place, right? And so this is, this is not an environment in which museums are typically meant to work. You know, they're meant to, in fact, it's the opposite. Museums are meant to preserve objects forever and, and so on. And this was something that was tremendously difficult for the artworks. It was tremendously difficult for the people looking after the artworks. And there was something about that fast moving, uncertain situation that when I kind of reflect back on the last year, I, I think I, I, I was drawing on in different kind of ways, even though um, drilling out granite in West Cornwall is some distance from a global pandemic. In there, you touched upon finance there. Now, the Contemporary, Nottingham Contemporary, uh, is, a, is a flagship cultural venue. You've had more than 2 million visitors in the, in the 12 years that you've been open, but you don't charge. If you As you've said, everything's free. No one pays unless they make a donation. What unique challenges does that give you? So we opened back in 2009, so in the immediate wake of the financial crisis. And in a certain sense, our first decade has been lived within a, a decade of austerity, a decade of major cuts to organisations like ours. We were first conceived in the 2000s, before the financial crisis. So in a very real sense, we're, I don't want to say relic, but you know, this is a, we were designed at a very his, different historical moment when perhaps 80% of our funding might have been coming from the government via the Arts Council or the City Council. We're now at a point where less than 50% of our funding comes from public money. So we're having to, to raise every year more than a million pounds just to keep the lights on, to keep exhibitions happening, to keep everything that we do free. We do that through a whole range of different ways. We have a cafe, we have a shop, we, we rent out our spaces. A huge part of my role is about fundraising. That means maintaining good connections with trust and foundations who support all of the important education work we do. It means engaging with different private individuals and benefactors who might have an interest in supporting the exhibitions that we do. It's tremendously challenging and it brings with it a whole range of different uh, questions around ethics, around continuity, around mission. None of these are unusual in the museum world, but they are things that have uh, intensified in the last decade. There's more scrutiny for all of the right reasons. You think back over the last few years and you think back about controversies around Sackler's funding of culture, for example, BP, Shell, Unilever, so much else. There's a different calling to account of cultural organisations that's happening now. And I think 
is really going to shape the politics and the programs that we see in museums and cultural organizations in the next decade or so. When you started as a museum director, did you realize that this was the territory? Did you realize that what you'd be doing? Short answer is probably no. <laughs> I took a somewhat unusual route into the museum world. I mean, to jump all the way back, I didn't study art history. I didn't study curating. I studied literature. And I did that because when I was at school, I had no idea that there was such a thing as art history. I didn't go to museums. What I was into was music, from experimental music to pop music. And I read a lot of music criticism, music journalism. That's basically what I thought writing was. So my way into culture was through music and i went to study literature largely because i thought that would give me a way into becoming a music critic and during my time at university i began to realize that a lot of the musicians that i was interested in were also performing in a museum context and were drawing on ideas from artists so i spent most of my 20s as a writer and editor working at freeze magazine in london Freeze uh, at the time had offices in Berlin and New York, so I got to spend plenty of time in those cities too. Towards the end of my 20s, I got more interested in what education could do in a museum context. And so when I was invited to apply for the job at Tate, I thought, well, what a leadership role like this requires is somebody who can write, who can communicate, who can fundraise, who is interested in education, is close with artists, and is thinking about what happens next for museums. And, and so that's that's why I applied at the age of 29 for this job. And I think in a certain sense that um, that range of experiences did give me a good standing in terms of moving into museums, because all of those different things uh, you have to draw on every day. I saw that it was a kind of progression from what you had been doing, but mm. you could always have known that you would be a writer or a mm. musician or a critic. But mm. did you always recognise that you would be a leader, you'd be in charge? I don't think so, no. My time at Freeze was um, spent within an organisation that was extremely unhierarchical. There were three co-editors, one in New York, one in London, one in Berlin. I was an associate editor, which meant a somewhat more free floating role, I suppose. All of the editors had lives outside of the magazine, which always felt important, right? Like one was a novelist, one was a professor of philosophy, one was in a slightly weird electro band. And this kind of sense of, um, of it being a job, not being a hobby, but it being a kind of pursuit felt really important to me. So I didn't have a sense of wanting to lead anything really at that point, because I was not working in an organisation that had a clearly defined kind of leader. And, and I think it was all the better for it. But I suppose what I wanted to, to do when I got towards the end of my 20s was to think about the ways in which culture and contemporary art in particular could reach a broader audience. And I started to understand that I could only really do that within the context of working in a museum. If you say that your greatest challenge so mm. far might have been the constant need to, to raise a million pounds every year to, to, yeah. to, to keep the lights on, what's been the greatest success so far? Something that I'm tremendously proud of is Nottingham Contemporary being shortlisted for Museum of the Year back in 2019. It coincided with our 10th anniversary, with celebrating our two millionth visitor. It coincided with this extraordinary exhibition, very many years in the making, about the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus. And it really just felt like a, a coming together of things that could only happen in Nottingham. 
and could only happen at Nottingham Contemporary. And it felt like it was a real team effort. You know, what we were being acknowledged for was not exhibitions alone. It was for the work that we do with schools. It was for the collaborations we, we have with the uh, universities. And it was for pioneering work like the VR exhibitions that we were, we were doing online. But were you relate, able to relate that to your leadership? You talk about drawing together of partners there. Somebody has to do that. Did you see yourself in that role? I'll always want to emphasise collaboration. And the application for this was a real collaboration. But it felt like a point at which I had been in the role for four years. I'd taken over back at the beginning of 2016 from Alex Farkerson, the founding director who moved on to Tate Britain. And when I started, I really saw myself as just trying to build on the brilliant work that Alex and the team had done. But I suppose at that point, three, four years in, it started to feel like a new chapter had started. And, and while I, why I want to talk about the Museum of the Year nomination was because it felt like that was a moment where that was recognised and, and celebrated. What has leadership taught you about yourself? I think in my time working as a writer and editor, there's a somewhat solitary aspect to that. I mean, you know this with your background in journalism, right? You're, you're continually in touch, and yet you are, at the end of the day, writing or editing by yourself. And I think I, because of that, had always assumed somehow that I, I thrived with time and space for myself. I was then very surprised to move to an environment like Tate, where at Freeze I was having almost no meetings, just in touch with people, talking. At Tate, it suddenly felt like my day was only meetings. <laughs> Welcome to leadership. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and over time, I realised that actually that kind of collaboration, that kind of negotiation, that kind of diplomacy was something that I really enjoyed. And working within an organisation like Tate, it's a large institution that has its roots in the 19th century. It's more than a thousand people split across four or five different sites. It sometimes feels like you're working in a branch of government and to get anything done, you had to know who, who you got to talk to, whose arms you got to twist and you got to go and find people. And I, I was taken by surprise by, the, by how I actually enjoyed that. So it, your question of what has it taught me about myself, it's, it's taught me that, that I really do value collaboration and conversation. And I think one of the reasons I, I value those things is because I enjoy, after all, living with uncertainty. And I think this is one of the major challenges for any leader at this time. You enjoy living with uncertainty. So presumably this period is tailor-made for yourself. A little less uncertainty might be welcome. But, you know, why, why I use that word uncertainty is that it feels like we're living in unprecedented times. These are uncertain times. I would imagine that anybody in, you know, whatever decade of whatever millennia would always think themselves living in uncertain times, right? But there seems like there's something particular about the current moment where it's difficult to think a year or two ahead or even a month or two ahead. I think we're at a point now where we're actually working in the dark or in a kind of haze. And this is where, for me, artists can really lead. You know, this is where I listen to artists the most because artists are always in tune with not only what's happening now, but what's going to be happening tomorrow. And I think contemporary art centres have always, since their inception, been thinking about what happens next. And, and it feels to me like this is a particularly resonant, particularly exciting moment to be working with that kind of uncertainty. 
I've done 15 of these podcasts and nobody but nobody has said that. <laughs> I guess it's a particular it's a particular angle for an artist to come from. So you realized how much you enjoyed collaboration and the value of collaboration when you became a director in St. Ives at, at the Tate. That was ooh, five, ten, ten years ago. How has how has leadership changed over that last decade? I, I think within within the cultural field, I think there is more focus and I'd say long due focus on well-being, on mental health, on development, on progression. These are things that when I first came into this field were, were often overlooked. That is very fashionable to say that. Everybody yeah. will say that. Do you see it as being real? I do. I think it's been slow in coming. I think it's some of the generational shift that I was describing earlier. I think it's it's coming from a younger generation and, and by young, I'm not going to use the term millennials, but I'm going to think about people who were coming out of school or university in the wake of the financial crisis who are coming out into a very, very challenging job market. I think there's a real divide between people who graduated before 2008, as I did by a whisker and, and after. They have very different demands about their employers and about the kinds of teams they want to be part of. And so I think that's a that's a shift that has um, that's happened pretty quickly in the last five or ten years. In the last last year, obviously, the pandemic has really catalyzed a move towards working remotely, working from home. And I think we're yet to see how that's going to play out in the, in the years to come. I'm aware I'm probably not the right person to be asking uh, answering this this question, you know, as a as a white university educated guy, but. When I look about around at colleagues in the sector, I think there has been a lot of positive change there. And uh, clearly there are still major hurdles, major structural issues, but there has been real change. What I'd like to end with is the catch-all question, which, um, which I always ask and which um, elicits uh, interesting answers. If you were to offer a single piece of advice for a, a young person graduating uh, from not in a business school, from NTU, perhaps in business, perhaps in the arts, what might that piece of advice be? My advice would be to find your mentors, build a family. This is something that took me a while to understand that if there's somebody out there doing work that you admire, reach out to them. Very few people are going to say no to the uh, offer of a coffee or a, or a phone call and that's something that when you're starting out when you're trying to find your way those conversations can be really helpful uh, so don't be shy the worst i think that can happen is that your email doesn't get a response or somebody says no but in my experience people really don't people are really as interested in what the younger generation is thinking about is working towards as they are in their own colleagues so um reach out is my advice fantastic advice Sam Thorne, thank you very, very much for spending some time with us. Thanks so much, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available with former banking executive Robin Fole, the Army's chief medic, Peter Homer, and the CEO of the newly reopened Nottingham Castle, Sarah Blair Manning. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy and your producer was John Collins.